and welcome to another episode of Unpacking the Case. I'm joined today, as ever, by our Head of Legal Training, Richard Snape. Hi, Richard. Hello, Lizzie. It's been a long, long time. It has, and we're nearly, we're nearly done for the year. This is our last podcast of the year. year. I'm celebrating today. Um, so our podcast today is going to be focusing on alienation, uh, which is a topic that we've covered previously in the podcast, but there's a couple more um, a couple more cases you wanted to go through. The first case being Aubergine Enterprises and Lakewood International. Yeah, it's, um, would you like to, me to give you the background to that? Yes, please do, yeah. It's a Court of Appeal case from 2002. It's got a soft spot in my heart, Lizzie, mm-hmm. because I remember talking about this when I first started to do this as my main job all those years ago when I was a child lecturer. And... Uh, it sort of caused a bit of a stir then, and people seem to forget about it. But the actual background, it's, um, it's based on, but probably takes a bit further, another court of appeal case that uh, I remember from 1996, um, which was, uh, I say not exactly to the point, but um, it was about uh, not alienation itself, but it was a case called Mount Eden and Prudential. Uh, which was all about a similar kind of covenant where, you know, it's subject to consent not to be unreasonably withheld. And that was uh, alterations to the premises, an alteration covenant. Uh, but the landlords uh, uh, had to give their consent in writing to any alterations to the premises. The tenants wanted to carry out, and Mount Eden and Prudential, they wanted to carry out alterations, structural alterations. They asked the landlord's consent and the agents responded by saying, we agree subject to license. To cut a long story short in Mount Eden, no formal license materialized. There was a, there was a, recollect, there was a sale of the reversion going on. It seemed to confuse things. And uh, the tenant jumps the gun. They start uh, the alterations without a formal license. And the landlord, for whatever reason, took objection to this and uh, served a section 146 notice as a preliminary to forfeiture proceedings. And uh, that's basically what the case was about. And all those years ago, incredibly significant case for both lawyers and surveyors. All those years ago, the court decided that uh, you weren't in breach um, because that uh, letter at the time from the landlord's agents, we agree subject to license, was the license to alter. How would they justify that, especially as subject to contracts used all the time? Well, um, the, the Court of Appeal said, as uh, Lord Justice Murray, who was the, the main judgment, said that uh, uh, you can't equate subject to license with subject to contract. Subject to contract, you know, contract is a, a bilateral discussion. And you use words like subject to contract to make sure you don't commit yourselves before you're ready to. Whereas um, licenses are unilateral. And once you've expressed any kind of agreements, then you can't hide behind subject to, to license. It really doesn't mean anything. Um, and you can't insist on conditions that are not in the lease itself. And that was that case all those years ago, 1996, late 1996, as I said. And uh, Aubergine and Lakewood, um, still can't get over there, why they call themselves Aubergine Enter- uh, in, uh, Enterprises. <laughs> Aubergine and Lakewood um, takes that further. Can you tell me about the background facts then? Yeah, it was, a, it was actually a residential case. Aubergine Enterprises and Lakewood International are two companies based in the British Virgin Islands. Aubergine were purportedly buying this uh, property and, uh, and Lakewood selling. Uh, the premises themselves were in um, well, Barclay Street in the centre of London. 
and just off Barclay Square in Mayfair. And even back in well, the facts ago, it was in the late 1990s, you can imagine it was seven stories in this block and it was going for a pretty penny. I suspect a lot more nowadays, but the um, purchase price was 4.68 million pounds. And uh, although it is residential, what brings it into um, more of the domain of commercial? Um, well, they've exchanged contracts being residential. You don't always obviously do that in commercial permit leases, but they did here. And um, they'd used uh, the standard uh, conditions of sale, the standard conditions of contract, which are more suitable for residential, as opposed to the standard commercial property conditions. Uh, it was actually the third edition um, that they were using, but uh, the current edition, the fifth edition, is pretty much the same, it's condition uh, 8.3, uh, which says that uh, if you need a license, which they needed here, unlike a lot of residential properties, then um, you, uh, well, the tenant has to use their reasonable endeavours to obtain the license. Uh, and uh, you have to pay for the costs of obtaining the license and the purchaser has to um, provide any documentation references which might be reasonably required. And it's the assign all its obligation to try and obtain the license. And 8.3.4 goes on to say if there's no formal license in place at least three days before completion, um, then either side can rescind the contract, refuse to be bound, potentially suing damages, you know, forfeit deposits and the likes. Um, they asked for the license to uh, assign. Uh, they'd exchanged contracts on August the 9th, I think it was 1999, and they made the request of the landlords on August the 12th, three days later. Um, the completion date was due to be on September the 30th, same, same year, obviously. Um, the landlords uh, eventually responded by saying that, um, by the end of August, it was August the 26th, when the landlords responded by saying that uh, they headed the, the, the letter without prejudice and subject to license, and said that um, we agree, or reminded to agree in principle, we agree in principle, uh, that we're prepared to grant a license. There were then various disputes about rent deposits and undertakings as to costs, with the problem that um, well, there wasn't any formal license by the completion date or formal license by deed towards the completion date and the purchaser, Aubergine, purported to rescind the contract. And seller you know, serves notice to complete on them, wants to sue in damages, wants to sue for any losses. And the court decided that um, you had got a formal license because that uh, correspondence without prejudice, we agree in principle, was the license. You can't hide behind in principle subject to license. And they got sued quite heavily as a consequence. And as I say, everybody dealing with not just residential, but even more so commercial leases, where systematically you need licenses to assign and alter and so on, needs to deal with that every last property professional. And that's the significance of aubergine and Lakewood. Are there any other problems that might arise? Well, there were other cases. I mean, there's a case that I, again, briefly touched upon in my, my webinar, 1999 case called uh, Rose and Stavrit, which said exactly the same in relation to the other commonplace covenant where you need to get consent, and that's change of use. Um, 
The uh, most bizarre of all was a case I did actually deal with in a bit of detail in my webinar, a case called Alcabian Aster, where it wasn't a, a letter. This was from 2008, from late 2008. It was a creature, creature of the credit crunch days. The purchaser, Alchemy, was a property developer and they were buying a property in Knightsbridge. Uh, they'd exchanged contracts and then had second thoughts um, because of what had happened to property prices in the latter part of 2008. And uh, they were required to um, well go ahead with completion based on an email that said, we agree subject to license. And basically said that uh, the license must be a formal license executed as a deed. But nevertheless, they were bound to, to purchase the property and could get sued if they didn't. What's the solution? Well, I, I should also perhaps say that um, if you're using the standard commercial property conditions, it, it still makes it still causes problems because that says that completion will be delayed for up to four months if you haven't got a formal license. But what the solution is, is to make clear in the lease itself what a formal license is. You know, and a formal license, well, you know, the license to assign must be not just in writing, but license executed as a deed by a solicitor. Lots of leases will say that in relation to alienation. Uh, they won't always say that in relation to alterations, especially non-structural alterations. I think it's a matter of drafting. But even if everybody mended their ways, you know, right now, there'd still be a lot of older leases that don't make clear that you need a license uh, executed as a deed. And that's the first of the cases. Okay, great, thank you. So should we move on to the next case? I think you mentioned Ashworth, Fraser, Gloucester City Council. Yeah, this wasn't the case I mentioned in, in the webinars. Uh, mainly due to the fact that you've got to constrain yourself in one hour long Zoom conferences. But it was a House of Lords case from, uh, from 2001, so it is significant in that respect. Uh, would you like me to tell you the background to that? Yes, please. The City Council were the, um, the landlords of this premises. Um, it was a developer called um, Kenzie Hill who were the initial tenants. And it was a, a, a long lease, a building de development lease of this particular premises. It was a 114 year lease of what used to be the cattle market, uh, the old cattle market in Gloucester, just outside the city centre. And uh, it's a 14 and a half acre site. And the cattle market was derelict. So they sold to Mackenzie Hill and Mackenzie Hill agreed that uh, they would develop uh, um, the site for basically referring to various planning uses for light industrial, medium industrial sites and warehousing. And they would start the development, uh, building the buildings within a year and complete within five years. Um, because of the initial costs of it all, they didn't have to pay any rental for the first seven years and didn't have to pay a premium for about a year and a half. The initial agreement was um, from December the 25th, um, uh, 1968. It was back quite a way. I remember when I used to live in Gloucestershire, it's been an ongoing problem, uh, the old cattle market development. But uh, would you like me to tell you what happened after that? Yes, please. Um, the uh, well, there were, uh, there were a couple of um, assignments at the lease. 
uh, eventually uh, the premises got to Ashworth Fraser. Uh, and uh, they were going to, uh, they wanted to assign the lease themselves. You know, the buildings have been built in the likes, but they wanted to assign the lease, uh, the remainder of the lease to uh, Mount Stay Metal Corporation, um, who wanted to, to run the metal, uh, metal smelting works there, which didn't fit within the uses within the leases themselves. Uh, there were a couple of issues really um, uh, when it got, finally got to the, the, the House of Lords. One problem, the major problem was that Mount State, before they'd actually applied for an assignment of the lease, had already put in a planning application with the council for a change of use. Uh, you know, so they could have this metal smelting works. Um, so the city council, suspecting quite obviously that they were going to be breaching the user covenants in this lease, you know, if they've been applying for planning permission for another use, uh, refused consent to the assignment. It was subject to the sort of standard qualified covenant not to assign without consent, not to be unreasonably withheld. And the major question, as I say for the, the court, although there were other issues, was that um, can you use your suspicions, if you like, of a tenant you know, breaching the terms of the lease um, as a reason for refusing consent. Is that reasonable? What did the House of Lords decide? They, um, on this particular issue, well, they, they, they reversed the first instance and Court of Appeal decisions. I mean, they, they reversed the Court of Appeal decision scrub first instance. They reversed the Court of Appeal decision. Uh, there'd been a, a case, a quite controversial Court of Appeal case in 1973 called Killick and Second Covenant Garden, uh, which uh, property which had uh, basically said you can't use you know, future suspicions of breaches by a, an assignee as a reason for refusing consent. And the Court of Appeal felt bound by that, but uh, the House of Lords finally said that that's, uh, that's not so, Killick was overruled. Um, and your suspicions of breaches uh, might be a good reason for refusing consent. Did they say anything else? Oh yeah, they, they quite a few things that went on, but they, the House of Lords, I did briefly mention this actually in the webinar, but the House of Lords made clear that whether you're refusing consent or not is a question of fact, but your suspicions that the ten, you know, incoming tenant is going to be in breach would almost certainly be a good reason for refusing consent, but everything really depends on its facts. And they also said that uh, it might be reasonable to refuse consent, uh, even if it's not right to refuse consent. It's a bit, if you can understand that, there's a sort of band of reasonableness. You know, just because some people would give consent doesn't mean to say you're acting unreasonably. And as it happens, they also lost on another ground. And that was uh, the House of Lords decided that the, the user covenants weren't being breached. If you remember, the initial lease said that you had to build up, you know, light industrial, middle industrial uh, sites and warehousing, which were then going to be sublet. But it, they said that that didn't mean that um, those were the user covenants. Just because you have to build up those kind of units doesn't mean to say they have to be used for those purposes. So it was a pyrrhic victory, another victory like that, and we're all done for. The other case we wanted to mention is Norwich Union Life Insurance Society in Shotmore. Do you want to start us off on that one? Yeah, it was a case that it, within the notes for the webinar, but uh, one that I didn't really mention. 
but it was the starting point in a, a whole series of sort of issues uh, about um, provision section one of the 88 Landlord and Tenant Act. Uh, not a particularly well-drafted piece of legislation, but section one basically says that, it says a lot of things actually in a small, uh, you know, well, a fairly large section. One thing it says that if the tenant makes a written request for assignment, you know, whether it's subject to consents, then the landlord must respond with their consent in writing within a reasonable time, unless it's reasonable to refuse consent. And if it is reasonable to refuse consent, they must refuse in writing within a reasonable time. Uh, and if they're going to add conditions, they must be reasonable conditions in writing within a reasonable time. And it also incidentally gave a new remedy. It, it makes clear as well, people do forget this, that the burden on showing reasonableness is the landlords. The landlords, the one who has to introduce the evidence and the tenant doesn't have to show, you know, your refusal is unreasonable. But what do you do about it if the landlord doesn't uh, respond within a reasonable time? Um, and uh, well, you've always been able to go to court for a declaration, which uh, people don't always want to do, and perhaps the high street doesn't can't afford to do always. But uh, the 88 Act also allowed a, a remedy. It's a breach of statutory duty. It's a tort. Anybody, a signer or a signer, who suffers loss as a consequence can sue for that loss. And uh, Norwich Union, this 1998 High Court decision, was basically about what happens if you don't respond within a reasonable time. What are the background facts on this case? Yeah, this one took place in um, the, the centre of Sheffield. It's, um, it's, it's a place called The Moor. Um, it's a shopping arcade, I think I know, from my trips to Sheffield. Um, and um, it's... Uh, involved in particular part of this row of shops this um, called uh, Rockingham House. There were 150 year lease uh, granted in 1993 of this particular premise by premises by the city council um, to, by Rockingham House and um, they wanted to, Norwich Union wanted to assign the lease to this American organization called Pelmar, Pelmar Limited Partnership I think, were based in Delaware um, and they exchanged contracts uh, in 1996, uh, April of 1996. Um, and um, the contract was made conditional on um, Norwich Union getting a, a sublease of a part of the premises. And in April 1996, they approached the, the, um, the city council you know, to, um, take on, uh, to get consent to the assignment of this lease. The city council, I've never understood this part of the law report, but the city council announced that we're no longer your landlords. We've let it out, the premises out to, uh, to shop more. Um, I can only think that's an intermediate lease, but I might be wrong on that. Um, and so you better ask shop more for the details, which delayed everything. Shop more asked for the details of the, the assignment. Um, uh, Norwich Union seemed to have promptly provided details. This was back in sort of April time. Um, um, in terms of the assignment, and they wanted details of what the sublease terms were going to be. Uh, and there was much correspondence, but nothing happened uh, in terms of giving or refusing consent until December the 4th of that year. Um, and um, the 
they refused consent. And the basically Norwich Union went to court for, for a declaration. You know, you've fallen foul of section one of the 88 Landlord and Tenant Act. And the High Court said that the law is quite clear in the legislation that you've got a reasonable time to give your consent. Uh, it depends on very much on the circumstances, but it's probably weeks rather than days or months. And if you don't give your consent or refuse, reasonably refuse consent within a reasonable time in writing, you can't object to the, the assignment. You know, once that reasonable amount of time, and this was far from being reasonable, has passed, it's too late to refuse consent. You've got to give or refuse consent within that reasonable time. And so Norwich Union succeeded. Are there any similar cases to this one? Yeah, there was a 1999 case, a high court case again, which is about subletting, subject to consent not to be unreasonably withheld. Section one applies to subletting as well. A case called Footwear and Amplite from uh, Wimbledon, which I did mention in my webinar, but uh, it's where they, in that particular case, as I recollect, they'd uh, asked for consent uh, on, November the 17th, they, they asked for consent to the subletting. Uh, it was three days later, that's easily a reasonable time, November the 20th, when um, the landlords responded by saying that, uh, they responded over the phone by saying that uh, we're gonna refuse consent. But nothing then happened until January the 15th when they repeated this in writing. And the court in that particular case decided that the law again is quite clear. You have to respond in writing within a reasonable time and you didn't, therefore you can't object to the, the assignee or sublessee in this case. I suppose the other case, um, which I didn't mention was a, a case called uh, Go West and Spigarola, I think it is, or Spigarolo, um, which was a London case on Camden High Street couple of 12 year leases within the same premises. And uh, they asked consent uh, for the assignment on March the 13th, 2001, it was a 2003 court of appeal case. Uh, the landlords were, and their solicitors were in correspondence arguing over various things uh, for week after week after week until they finally refused consent on May the 30th. They'd asked for further information of the tenants uh, for the assignees on May the 21st, and written refusing consent on May the 30th before the tenants could respond with the information. And in that particular case, the Court of Appeal decided that once you've corresponded refusing your consent, that's it. You can't change your mind later if you like. Uh, and uh, as it wasn't reasonable to refuse consent, again, the tenants won. There's one of those areas, Lizzie, where I think the, it's the solicitors as well as the, the surveyors and agents need to think carefully about things and correspond with one another. There's all too many situations where if you're not careful, the landlords might have given consent uh, to alienation inadvertently. <laughs> Um, or lost the ability to refuse consent, regardless of whether they could have done so or not. Well, there you go. Well, you've given the word of warning. <laughs> well, thank you, Lizzie. Have a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Yes, thank you. That's everything for 2021, but we'll be back in the new year, I'm sure. We're going to call your cracker now and end the last podcast with a joke. <laughs> <laughs> what sort of song would a ghost sing?
Um, I don't know what sort of song would it go to say. A haunting melody. No, that's rubbish. <laughs> that was a terrible joke. Are they all supposed to be terrible jokes? Thanks a lot, Richard. Bye. 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 Thank you very much to everybody for listening and we look forward to seeing you in our next episode of Unpacking the Case by David Jones Bold.